Yes, well, uh, as Roxanne just said, this is the final in the series, Elijah the Revivalist. And uh, we've been journeying along uh, through this theme for about six weeks now. Um, The first one, as you'll remember, let me do a little recap, was Man of Miracles. And uh, we saw this striking prophet uh, and how the Holy Spirit moved upon him, even raising someone from the dead. The second one was Battle of the Gods, and we saw that incredible showdown where Elijah was the Lord God's prophet, Yahweh's prophet, and he stood against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, and yet it was God stepped in and made it clear that he was the Almighty God, and the the nation, at least nominally, turned back to worship the one true God. However, we see the ups and downs in his life. Um, The third week, we looked at restoring a spiritual passion, and we saw Jezebel and all her demons curse this mighty prophet, and he was impacted. Um, He got to the depths of despair, where he was down and out and feeling suicidal. But we also not only saw him go down, we saw how he took five steps to come back into God's vision and calling on his life. The interesting one was week four, we looked at uh, Elijah being a man of justice, where rather than standing for the nation, he stood for a single family in Israel, uh, trying to bring about justice for that family. And last week, we looked at the radical prophet. I mean, we see that, that throughout his life, he's a uh, he's pretty, uh, pretty crazy guy, <laughs> outside, steps outside of the ministry boxes, he's not mainstream. Um, but one of the things that we focused on there was how God was angered by the fact that the king, the son of Ahab, Ahab was dead by this time, the son of Ahab called upon, wanted to call upon the prophet of Baal-zebub, which angered the Lord greatly. And, and of course, we finished that service by actually renouncing idols in our lives and a whole bunch of them were actually smashed here publicly. Well, this week, our last in the series, I'm titling this one, Passing the Baton, Part 6, Passing the Baton, because here we're going to watch how Elijah hands over the baton of prophetic leadership to Elisha. And there's some great principles here to learn about that. Now, you might remember at um, school, those baton races, you know, usually four runners, 100 metres each, and you've got to pass that baton. Now, I, I, just, I just think I did a few of those. <laughs> and I can remember one year, we're probably grade five or six primary school, and four of us boys were practicing, you know, and uh, that time of year when you're doing, doing all that sort of stuff. And um, anyway, we knew we weren't the fastest runners. Now, we, we'd, we've seen Commonwealth Games and Olympics and stuff, and how you, you have, the, have the dude who's like running flat out with that baton, and the guy in front of him he's got to hand it to, they start taking off running, and whilst they're running, the hand's going backwards and forwards, and they, they still do that smooth transition. Well, we tried that a few times, and we found we dropped it most of the time we did that. So we thought, look, we've got to do something different. So we did it like this. We just waited. So we'd be there watching the runner come forward and, as soon, and we'd have our hand out like this, just waiting for that baton. And as soon as we saw them getting near, we'd poise, grab the baton and shoot into action. Well, despite not being the fastest runners, we won because all of our exchanges of the baton were smooth. <laughs> and we're seeing this today. We're going to see this in Elijah, how he smoothly hands over this very important responsibility of prophetic leadership to the nation. Let's look at the first little uh, portion here. 1 Kings 19.16, God speaks to Elijah. He says, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, 
from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Now you notice here, God is in this. God speaks to him. Actually, there's no committee meetings, there's no voting. God speaks to Elijah about this appointment. And of course, we learn from this, of course, in the appointment of a new leader, yes, it's good to look at job descriptions. It's good to look at spiritual gifts. But God needs to be in it more than anything else. When we're talking spiritual leadership, God needs to be in it. So number one, new leaders should be appointed by God. Number one, new leaders should be appointed by God. Next portion of Scripture says this, 1919 of 1 Kings. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. So clearly he's, by profession, he's a farmer. Uh, let's have a look at these oxen here um, paired up. So 12 of these suckers, you know, so quite a big team of them. He's driving one of those pairs, 24 oxen in total. And so he's plowing up the fields. Um, it would have been inherited from his parents who are still alive. And uh, that was very normal. The land would get passed from generation to generation. So there, Elijah and Elisha, they clearly knew each other, but this is the setting where he comes and talks to him about this calling. Uh, let's keep going and uh, have a look here at uh, 19 through 21. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Very symbolic. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah, Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. That's quite, quite a few things in the passage there. So first of all, Elijah threw his cloak over Elisha. Elisha would have known this was a symbolic thing of saying, the mantle of prophetic leadership on my life will one day be on yours. It was a way of him declaring, you will be the person in discipleship, you will become my servant, you will be the one I'll train up into that prophetic ministry. Um, and clearly you can see there's a relationship there, they already knew each other. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Elijah, he's surprised that Elisha wants to go back and say goodbye to his parents. Um, <laughs> and that's typical of Elijah. He was much more that kind of solitary prophet who's often alone, praying and that sort of thing. You read Elisha's life throughout 2 Kings and he's much more social. He's often with the community of prophets. You know, so that it's different, different callings, different giftings, but also a lot of similarities between these two guys. Um, let me suggest this as a second point. New leaders will bring different gifts. New leaders will bring different gifts. Despite the similarities, Elisha is clearly a different personality to Elijah. I encourage you to read 2 Kings, actually. It'd be good to have a look at his life as well. 1 Kings 19.21 says this, So Elijah, Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. I want to emphasize this little moment where it says he burnt the plowing equipment. Now, you know, he could have sold that, couldn't he? Or he could have left it there in his parents' farm, whatever. But he burned it. And I believe this is, this is a powerful symbol of him saying, 
the life of an agriculturalist or a farmer is gone for me. That's, that's past. It's gone completely. In fact, I'm even going to burn the ploughing equipment, cook up the oxen. They're all going to have a heap of beef. And so the whole community come together for a big feast. And it's also a way of him, you know, saying farewell to that community because now he's going to be on the road with Elijah. Um, it speaks of his commitment. No turning back. He's not just selling the stuff. He's burning it. Can I suggest this? Number three, new leaders should be committed to the task. New leaders should be committed to the task. It says in 2 Kings 2 verse 1, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah, said, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel together, of course. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you lived, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. <laughs> Before leaving, Elijah clearly wants to um, farewell some of the, the companies of prophets. God's leading him to do that. And so he goes to these different companies of prophets, spends some time with them, prays with them, eats with them, no doubt. You know, and there's this little bit of time where they have together. And I want to suggest that uh, we learn from this. Number four, healthy transitions involve appropriate farewells. Healthy transitions involve appropriate farewells. Now, we've got, we've got a transition coming up right now. Um, as some of you will be aware, um, Kerry, who's been our administration director in an employed role uh, for some time, uh, she has accepted a new job. And so she will not be continuing in that role. And we will have an appropriate farewell um, next week, so on Father's Day. Actually, we have our founding pastor too, the guy who planted this church. He'll be preaching that day, Pastor Brett Mitchell. Uh, but we'll say more about uh, the farewell later, not in this message. As we continue on, 2 Kings 2.7. 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance. Facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan, Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two men crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet... If you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. Now, I wonder what this idea, this double portion thing is, is all about. Um, you may have heard preachers say, Elijah was, uh, Elisha was asking for twice the power in his ministry that Elijah had. I actually don't believe that's the original intended meaning. Let me have a look here at um, Deuteronomy, this passage. 21.17, he must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. 
That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. Um, Donald Wiseman from the Tyndale Commentaries believes that what, what, it's, um, what this does is help clarify this idea of double share or double portion. It's simply saying, Elisha is simply asking for the same inheritance. I want the inheritance of the firstborn. I want to receive what you have. If um, Elijah was his father, so to speak, he'd be inheriting that, that land or that property or whatever. I want to inherit what the Lord has blessed you with, the same mantle for prophetic ministry that you've given me. He's not asking for twice as much, actually. He's just asking for the same anointing. I think that's the most natural intended meaning here. And I know you might have even heard people say something like, but there's twice as many miracles in Elisha's life as there is in Elijah's. Well, you count them up. No, there's not. They're about the same. And in fact, if anything, Elijah's are more dramatic. So, no, I, I, I tend to agree with the commentator. I think it's sim- Elijah is simply ask- Elisha is simply asking that he wants the same anointing for his ministry. But the point holds. New leaders should be hungry for God's anointing. Number five. New leaders should be hungry for God's anointing. The anointing over any ministry, God's power of any ministry, of course, is very important. Let's have a look at this donkey. When in doubt, have a look at the donkey. Got a donkey there? There's no donkey. There's no donkey. The donkey mustn't have come. <laughs> that stubborn little fella, he didn't even want to, he wouldn't go on the slides. I had a great little picture of a donkey who um, was carrying a load and poor little thing, he's tied to the you know, things that he pulls either side of him and he's got the big load behind and it's so heavy, he's tipped up in the air, his feet are not even touching the ground, poor little fella. <laughs> Ever felt like a donkey? It's like got such a big load you just can't carry it. Uh, um, I remember um, John Smith who was, uh, I was doing a series, a uh, similar series to this in my old church about five, six years ago and John Smith, the um, founder of God Squad, the motorcycle organisation, um, one of the things that uh, the, the late John Smith, he's passed away now, I was pretty frail actually when he came to preach at our church. Um, great man though, and um, one of the things he was saying that, you know, when it comes to carrying a load in ministry or whatever, one of the most important things is operating with God's strength under the anointing. And he, he goes on to say in that particular message that um, a lot of people will face burnout because they haven't embraced the anointing of God sufficiently to carry that ministry load. And as much as you might say, yeah, well, it's not easy to embrace that anointing, you're right, it's not. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a challenge in itself. But uh, that's his point about that. New leaders need to be hungry for God's anointing. Let's, let's read on. 2 Kings 2.6 says this, Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Um, three times, Elisha has said, I will not leave you. You know, clearly, he's very attached to Elijah. You, you see that here in this passage. And uh, um, it, it's, it's, it's more than, he, yes, he's his disciple. Elisha's Elijah's disciple. But clearly the way he talks, there's this, there's this relationship. They've become close. It's probably been a few years of being trained. Very attached to him. Doesn't want to leave his side. 2 Kings 2.11. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared 
and separated the two of them. Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. You got this image again. They're walking along together, it says at the beginning of the passage. He, what does he call him? My father, my father. It's a term of endearment there. Can I suggest this? God raises up new leaders through discipleship. God raises up new leaders through discipleship. We see this relationship between Elijah and Elisha. It's very strong, but it's, it's, it's a discipleship relationship where he's been trained over uh, a period of time to be equipped for that new role. And, um, you know, I think there's uh, something to be said. We see a little bit of this in Scripture, this one-on-one discipleship relationship. And, of course, there's a little bit of that going on in our church as I speak. There is something powerful about that. One more point. 2 Kings 2.13 says this, Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided right to the left and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Not in worship, but as a sign of respect. And so they identified that same anointing that's upon the previous prophet to the nation Israel. Elijah is now upon Elisha. And they show him that same respect. And as you read 2 Kings, you can, cle- you can clearly see he is the prophet that is the primary prophet of the nation and the school of the prophets, the various companies of prophets, give him that respect and give him that freedom to be that leader. Can I suggest as our final point, new leaders should be empowered to lead. New leaders should be empowered to lead. Let's recap on the um, seven points there we see about this uh, passing of the baton of leadership. Number one, new leaders should be appointed by God. Two, new leaders will bring different gifts. Three, new leaders should be committed to the task. Four, healthy transitions involve appropriate farewells. Five, new leaders should be hungry for God's anointing. Six, God raises up new leaders through discipleship. Seven, new leaders should be empowered to lead. I want to finish with uh, something here where we see God over the last 2,000 years plus has been passing the baton of leadership from one generation to another, from one church to another for a couple of thousand years. Let me quickly run through this. Right at the beginning, um, go back to the first century, you think of uh, the Apostle Paul. We know a lot about him, don't we? read about the Apostle Paul and uh, he shared the gospel all over the Roman world, planted churches, all manner of miracles, raised up leaders. Amazing ministry. Now, God has chosen to give us a Bible that we can actually carry because he could have, we could have been reading about all manner of the disciples that were doing exactly the same thing. Let me mention a couple of them. For instance, James. He took the gospel further afield than Paul did. He got it all the way to Spain. No understanding that Paul ever got as far as Spain. 
and he planted churches in Spain. In fact, you can go and visit Spain to this day, one of the big cathedrals. He is supposed to be buried under that cathedral. Or we think of someone like Thomas. He took the gospel even further than that. He took the gospel all the way to India. Yep, doubting Thomas. Gospel all the way to India. I've um, done, the, done uh, some ministry in India. Indians have no doubt about it whatsoever that Thomas was the apostle that took the gospel to their country. There's a, I've actually got a book that has a record of where he planted churches, approximate size of those churches, the miracles worked in those churches, where he was ultimately martyred. I've stood on the hill where he was martyred. There's a very, very ancient church there. And, um, and also I've also visited the cathedral where he is supposed to be buried in India to this day. I didn't have to pay anything to visit that. You could actually go and visit without paying money or anything. Striking stuff. There's still Thomas Christians in China, sorry, in India to this day. They still call themselves Thomas Christians. In fact, I had one in one, my last church, two churches ago, sorry. Uh, her name was Annie. She called herself a Thomas Christian, Indian background. But one of the interesting things, I've watched a purely secular documentary about this, which was saying, you know, how did Christianity come to India? They also presented all manner of evidence that it probably came through this ancient apostle, Thomas. Well, that story is just repeated time and time again. That was going on through all manner of leaders in the first century. The gospel was being spread all over the shop. Matthew took it to Northern Africa, for instance, the gospel. But I want to give you a ratio. Let's pop up this ratio here. AD, is that going to come? Yeah, beautiful. By the end of the first century, for every one believer in Jesus Christ, you had to reach, if we wanted to see the world saved, they had to reach 360 people each with the gospel. Very challenging task. And it slipped along a few hundred years. Well, as, as you'll be aware, the time came uh, when a Roman emperor became a Christian. And um, when Constantine legalised Christianity, um, huge difference, because it had been illegal up until that point. We're talking in the early 300s. And so when it became... Uh, you know, a legal religion, a lot of people could come out from hiding and kind of be a little bit more obvious about their Christian, a little bit more, or they're already pretty bold with their gospel preaching, but even bolder. And also not too long after this, it became the official Roman religion. Church growth was enormous through this period. That's when you get a lot of those huge old church buildings were built. But after a, after a time, some felt the church, though, has now become too worldly. And so they wanted to get away from it. And they, there was this monastic movement. And initially that movement was amazing, where they'd be these big monasteries, be centres of learning, including the learning of the scriptures, be a place where they'd feed the poor, a place where they would go out and do evangelism. A wonderful movement, actually, in its early days. And so that brings us up, let's just have a look at the ratio again, brings us up to 81,000. And the ratio now is for every one believer, they have to reach about 220 people with the gospel. Again, pretty overwhelming task. Well, let's uh, slip forward a little bit further. Then there was the early European expansion. And so the gospel had already touched Europe, of course, in the very first century, but it spread now to the point where most European countries would consider themselves fully Christian. And, you know, you say, you know, you'd ask the average person, um, what religion are you? And so I'm a Christian. And so most of Europe was Christian at this time, and also the gospel expanded, expanded beyond that. However... The Catholic and Orthodox churches of the time had allowed a lot of traditions to creep into their churches, to the point where church tradition was becoming more authoritative, really, than the Scriptures themselves. And although there's a fantastic ratio at the end of all of this, the church actually needed a Reformation. Let's have a look here at uh, 1500. 
1,500, the ratio has dropped all the way to this. Every one Christian has to reach about 69 people with the gospel. But I will say that probably does include a lot of nominal Christians in that particular statistic. Well, the Reformation took place in the early 1500s. And uh, there'd been minor Reformations before this, but this was the big one. So Martin Luther has the Bible printed. uh, First mass publication on the printing press in all manner of languages as well. And suddenly you have this huge movement of Protestant churches all over Europe, springing up all over the shop, all sorts of renewal going on in churches, some amazing stuff happening during that period. But it goes on. We hit the 1700s and we see the birth of the evangelical churches and we see these great revivalists. There's this massive revival in Britain and also America, millions upon millions of people coming to faith in Christ. And the great evangelist, George Whitfield, preaching in England and America, and his catch cry was, you must be born again. And this is really where the evangelical stuff started. And so uh, both John Wesley and George Whitfield had a huge impact over that period. But it goes on. Look in the 1800s, and there was what um, has been referred to as the great missionary expansion. And we see the Baptist minister, William Carey, uh, creating principles in India that uh, cross, uh, about contextualization, cross-cultural ministries, which mission agencies all over the world then adopted. Well, our ratio for the first time now becomes something that seems manageable. Let's have a look at this. By the year 1900, for every one Christian, they had to reach just 27. Now we're back into genuine evangelical Christians, people who really know the Lord, for every one genuine, genuine Christian, they had to reach just 27. And I tell you what, that was impacting Christianity. There was a great feeling at the time, a great visionary feeling, that we can reach the whole world in our generation. Very, very strong thinking along those lines at that time. Well, um, there was a lot of preparation. As the year 9, 1900 approached, a lot of denominations had poured a huge amount of money into the year 1900 for evangelism. A lot of money going into missions. They were really believing for revival and a mighty move of God throughout that period. Well, it didn't come initially, not in the first year, or perhaps not quite in the second year. But in 1902, R.A. Torrey came here to Melbourne. He was discipled under D.L. Moody. And I'll tell you what, Melbourne people had been passionately praying for months. He arrived and this place was like a tinderbox, ready for the revival fires to fall from heaven. And indeed they did. Amazing revival. Tory was here back when evangelists did it properly. Tory was here for an entire month, preaching every day and night for like 30 days. And uh, Melbourne saw a mighty move of God, but he kept moving all over Australia. God did an extraordinary thing. Our nation experienced revival. And uh, I I agree with um, some historians, such as Stuart Piggin, a great historian for Australian evangelical movement. He believes that was the beginnings of the revival then, going across the seas to Wales. And in 1904, Wales experienced an extraordinary revival, mighty move of God, which then in turn came across to America. And by about 1904 in America, virtually all of America was experiencing a revival, an incredible move of God. James Edwin Orr has a fantastic publication about it, tremendous detail. And of course, one of the key revivals in that North American revival at the time was Azusa Street, which Pentecostals would say that was their beginnings. 
But let me mention one more thing that was key in this time. There's a chap called C.T. Studd. Now, he's a great cricketer. In fact, the Ashes, all that started when he was a cricketer, one of, uh, one of Britain's best all-rounders. He got radically saved, and he decided he would give up his cricket and become a missionary. When he was 25, he inherited an absolute fortune. I'm talking about $800 million by today's standards. His dad was very rich. And, uh, he, but he gave it all away to missions and evangelism and so forth. Spent some time in India, oh, sorry, in India and China, but the really strategic work is he started African Inland Mission. And that became known as WEC International, a tremendous missions organisation. In fact, that's where I train. And um, the Spirit of God moved in Africa incredibly through this mission and others. Let me give you the stat. In 1900, 3% of Africans were Christian. Over the next few decades, it grew to 40%, from 3% to 40% in just a few decades. Incredible. Well, let's have a look at our ratio by 1950. 1950, for every one genuine believer, they have to reach just 21 people. That sounds manageable. You could do that in a lifetime. Just imagine if every believer in their lifetime led 21 people to Christ, the whole world would be saved. But we go on. 1950. This is a time of some great evangelists that God raised up. Probably the foremost is really Billy Graham. Billy Graham talked face-to-face with over 200 million people, let alone all of the other forms of communication that went out. I mean, he was a mighty man of God, and he was a revivalist. A lot of people forget this. He wasn't just an evangelist. He was a revivalist. When he came to Australia in 1959, our nation had been praying in tens of thousands of people for revival to strike this nation. Billy arrives, and he, didn't, he did it properly. He didn't stay here for a couple of weekends. He was here for five months, five months. Trip to New Zealand as well. This is back when they knew how to do evangelism. Anyway, <laughs> he got hit. Melbourne was just burning with a desire for revival by the time he arrived. And of course, as you know, every, every day, every night for like 30 days, he's preaching right here in Melbourne. And of course, the final one of those meetings was at the MCG. And you've, you've probably seen the footage. The MCG is packed to the brim, not just the seating, but the grounds themselves. It is still the biggest meeting ever assembled at the MCG. And they turned, they shut the doors and turned thousands away as well. Huge move of God. I've met people that were saved at that actual event. One, well, that's typical of what Billy was doing all over the world. That was just happening all over the shop. There was revivals breaking out under Billy Graham's ministry all over the place. Another great revivalist is Reinhard Bonnke. You know, I, most, mostly to Africa, but he's done the whole world. I've seen him preach here in Australia. I saw him preach at Hillsong, actually. Um, Bonnke, great name, isn't it? <laughs> you want to get saved, listen to Bonnke. <laughs> in Africa, I've seen the footage where a helicopter flies over. Tens upon tens of millions of people. Just a crowd, as far as the eye can see, almost mind-boggling. In that particular meeting, huge speaker system. In that particular meeting, Bonke gives an altar call and over one million people come forward for salvation in a single altar call. Well, besides the great evangelists, there was other stuff that God was doing. This is the time of the mega church growth movement. Korea, for instance, South Korea. In 1900, I understand, South Korea did not have a single Protestant church. 
Then in 1950s, 60s, 70s, revival fires swept through South Korea. Ended up with the largest Presbyterian church in the world, the largest Methodist church in the world, and the largest Pentecostal church in the world. Cho's church, for instance, grew to 800,000 people. He was a senior minister over 800,000 people. Major centre and other branch churches, phenomenal. Hard to get your head around it, isn't it? And also that church growth movement as well spread throughout Latin America. Latin America had been largely Catholic. Now there was this huge evangelical move of God. Incredible number, millions upon millions of people coming to faith in Christ. Mega churches being planted all over the country. Phenomenal move of God. So by 1980, let's have a look at this ratio. By 1980, the ratio has hit this. For every one true believer, you have to reach just 11 people. 11 people. Doesn't that sound doable? A couple of decades. If everyone shared the gospel and led someone to Christ and discipled them, only has to be 11, the whole world would be saved. Finally, I'm going to bring it up to today. Friends, um, one of the things that people may not realise, as much as Muslims are difficult to reach with the gospel, do you know in the last few decades, more Muslims have come to faith in Christ than the previous 1,000 years? God is doing amazing work amongst Muslims. I remember speaking here in Dandenong to a bunch of people uh, with an Iranian background, a mixture of Christians and Muslims. I had an interpreter, 15 Muslims gave their lives to Christ at that meeting, one set free from a demonic power. You know, the Iranian people are open to Christ like never before. You think of Indonesia. Indonesia is the biggest Muslim populace in the world. And yet there are revival fires sweeping through Indonesia where thousands upon thousands of Christians are getting saved all the time. It's something in the vicinity now of 34 million Christians in Indonesia. And I tell you what, they are committed people because they get persecuted. Let me give you one more. China. You know, even though Hudson Taylor back in the 1800s, he spent 54 years in China doing missionary work, did an amazing job. In fact, C.T. Studd joined his ministry for a bit. But there really wasn't the penetration that there has been in this last few decades because the underground church in China is just phenomenal. Um, you've heard me hold up that book, um, Heavenly Man, Brother Ong. That's a great read. That will give you a picture of what God's been doing there over the last few decades. Over the last few decades, it's been something like 10 million people in China are getting saved every year. 10 million a year. And a lot of these guys are really switched on for God. Whew. Let me finish with this, friends. Today, our stat, one to seven. One to seven. If every genuine follower of Jesus Christ was to lead just seven people to the Lord, the whole world would be saved. Doesn't that sound doable? But look at the movement of God passing that leadership of baton, that baton of leadership from one generation to another, from one church to another over the centuries, and how the ratio. To, of people to reach has got smaller and smaller and smaller. And of course, the Christian church has got bigger and bigger and bigger. Let me give you the full stats here, because of course, I'm just talking um, evangelical Christians here. If you would include nominal Christians, the figure is actually one to three. Christians per non-believer. So because today, the, world's, the world population, 32% claim to be Christian. 
about a third of the world's population. Genuine, the real deal people, the ones who really, they're born again by the Spirit of God, they know the Lord, 14%. That's where we get our one, one to seven ratio from. Uh, these statistics have been largely furnished by the Lausanne Statistical Task Force and from the book Catch the Vision. And of course, I've been quoting from some of the great uh, historians, James Edwin Orr and Stuart Piggin, our Australian historian. How about we close in prayer? Let's be upstanding as the worship team returns. Lord, you have been successfully passing the baton of leadership from church to church, from generation to generation for the last 2,000 years. But you always have required that the new leaders, that there's new leaders, you've got to rise up. Each fresh season of your calling, it needs to be new leaders every generation. Lord, speak to us. This is a time that we consider getting on board and becoming one of your leaders in your work, someone who shares the gospel, someone who makes disciples. Father, help us to be a part of your great <coughs> expansion of your church, the kingdom of God on earth. Blessed is the holy name of Jesus. Amen.